Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Hour two of the Pass Ball Show, baseball interview show. And hopefully, you guys enjoyed the first hour. Todd Pratt, John Wasden. We're going to jump right into another interview I recorded this past week with former Major League pitcher Mike Bilecki. And Mike Bilecki came up with the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, was part of the Cubs uh, team that won the National League East Division and made you know the League Championship Series in 1989. Uh, also, had some very good years with the Atlanta Braves, three specific stints with the Atlanta Braves, and we also get into the uh, unfortunate, the sad and tragic accident, the boating accident that killed former Major League pitchers Tim Cruz and Steve Olin. So a ton of great stuff we get into. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with Mike Bilecki. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Mike Bilecki. Mike, what's going on, man? I'm just chilling and enjoying my retirement over here in Ocean City, Maryland. No, good deal, man. Of course, you know you had a, you had a long major league career. It started when you were drafted in 1979 by the Pittsburgh Pirates. What's a little bit, uh, you know, odd about that? And I, I don't know if it's so much odd, but that was the year that the Pirates won the World Series. Obviously, you were drafted before that, but I'm sure going into I'm sure going into that off season, it, it had to be pretty exciting to know you're playing for a team that just won the World Series championship. Well, I remember being at the World Series because I had just signed, uh, you know, I was like 18 or 19 years old, I had just signed with the Pirates, and they were playing the Orioles in the 79 series, and um, a huge Orioles fan, I grew up emulating Jim Palmer out in the yard, trying to do a high leg kick delivery and all that, and I was kind of torn, you know, between uh, room for my Orioles or room for my new employer, but I, mean, I, I was room for the Orioles. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I'm sure you weren't you weren't as upset as you would be over mo- most seasons. You're like, I, you know, the team that won is, you know, the team that I might have a chance to play for pretty soon. Right, right. Well, I was a young kid. I was still probably four years away from uh, the major leagues at that, that time. Yeah, now of course, you know, you you go through you go through the minor league system, like you said. You you were probably at the time, you know, you know, years away from making the major leagues, but. 
you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, the, the grinds of coming up through the minor league system and then eventually making your major league debut with the Pirates, which I believe was 1984, right? The thing was, um, I was in AAA, and the Pirates at the time were, gosh, they were, they were really bad. They lost 100-something games that year, and they kept me in, in AAA to win 19 games. <laughs> Now, who wins 19 games in AAA now? You win Nobody. two games in a row in AAA nowadays, you're in the big leagues. And I remember just, uh, I was actually, I was a, the minor league player of the year that year, and every time I'm pitching, even all the other managers say, what the hell are you still doing here? What are you still doing here? And they kept me in, in AAA the whole year, and I got called up in September, and they were, gosh, 40-something games out, and I never got a start. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't figure that out. I was like, well, I'm supposed to be their number one pitching prospect, and you're, you're at the bottom of the heap, and I'm, I didn't get a start. Yeah, that, was, that was the toughest part of my minor league career right there. Yeah, and obviously it got better from there. You end up you know, becoming a major league pitcher for the Pirates for a while, and then you move on to the Chicago Cubs. Tell us first of all about, you know, about you know, going from Pittsburgh to Chicago and what you felt the difference was. Well, when I, when I pitched in Pittsburgh, we played on AstroTurf, and we had, like, out of the younger guy, we had, like, an aging team, and it, it just seemed like every ground ball got through, and, you know, we played in front of 1,500, 2,000 fans, and then I got traded to the Cubs, and I get over to Chicago, and it's a Tuesday afternoon in April, it's freezing cold, and the place is sold out. Pretty interesting. John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Mike Bilecki. Now, now you know, obviously you get a chance in 1989 to pitch for the, the Cubs in the postseason. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, everybody's aware of the, the aura, the mystique. The Cubs hadn't been to the World Series since 1945. Of course, they still haven't won a World Series since 1908. Now, tell us a little bit about that 1989 season, getting into the postseason, and, you know, what, what that was all about, pitching for the Cubs that year. Oh, that was that was probably my fondest memory. I mean, I was in three World Series with the Braves, but my, that's probably one of my fondest memories because uh, we were a bunch of a bunch of guys, almost like a quilt, a whole bunch of guys thrown together and trying to put a team together. Uh, a bunch of vagabonds, and, and uh, our general manager that year, he would say, "Gosh, if you play 500, I'll be happy with this group of guys." And um, it got towards the middle of the All Star break, and we were everyone was hanging tough. It's like, hey, you know, we can, we might be able to do this. So uh, as the season went on, we had a younger club. I think it was uh, Mark Grace's first year, and 
Jerome Walt was the rookie of the year. He was our center fielder, and, and we just started realizing that we were good enough, and we played really well, got into the playoffs, and uh, played against the Giants. And uh, I pitched game two and five there. And a uh, tough, tough series, but um, that was the closest I think we could have got to the World Series. And then uh, when the Giants beat us, they had the big earthquake. So I think the baseball guys were a little ticked off that the Cones didn't get the World Series that year. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, man. I tell you now, you, know, you you hit it on the head. I mean, having some of the younger players mixed with some of the veterans that you had, you had Grace, you had Jerome Walton, you had Dwight Smith, all guys kind of coming up at the same time, and you know, mixed with the veterans, you know, the Sandbergs, you know, you you know, you were there. You had obviously veteran pitchers, you know, like yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, that, was, that was a blast. We had Mitch Williams as our closer. We really didn't have a closer the years before that. We traded. Uh, Palmero to Texas, that gives you an idea of how much they thought of Mark Grace to get a closer. And um, we were good there for a couple of years, but um, I don't know, it just seems like the companies always make the wrong moves at the wrong time. Uh, it's something that's followed them. I was uh, actually a broadcaster for Fox doing the Cup games when they had uh, Kerry Wood, Pryor, uh, Clements. And, uh, you know, it was the year, early 2000 with the Barkley, you know, with the line, with the foul ball and all that kind of stuff. I really thought those guys probably had a better team than we did. And uh, they never made it, and it just seems like they're going through another rebuilding period. Now listen, I mean Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, they got they got a plan. I mean it's 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 a tough time right now because you see the way that they are they're pretty much gutting that team down to try to build it for the future. And uh, listen, I guess you got to give it give a, a team like that that's rebuilding a chance to put something together. Hopefully, better times are ahead. Well, yeah, you have to. Baseball is cyclical. Hey, I'm from Baltimore, and I'm still an Orioles fan, and I think they've had 16 or 17 sub 500 seasons. And last year they. They uh, put this town on their ear. Everyone was excited. Um, look at the Pirates this year. The, the Pirates have been uh, bad since in the early 90s when I was in Atlanta. We were always playing Pittsburgh for the, the NLCS. What, you know, back with Bonds and Benia and Van Slyke or Lawyer and, and all those guys. So um, you just got to be able to get good draft picks and hold on to your. Uh, your free agents when they become free agents. Yeah, and I tell you, it really comes down to you know you make you got to make the right moves, and I think you hit it on the head. You know, some some moves you make you think are going to work out, and they don't, and that's the difference between mm-hmm. teams that win and teams that don't. Well, I played in Atlanta for the last six or seven years of my career, and you got to try to win baseball games and lose baseball games two to one, not eight to eight to six. So you got to you got to have a strong starting pitching staff. And you, you got to do everything you can to keep your guys. Um, I remember when they let Maddox go in Chicago, we were all kind of like, God, why would you let a guy like that go? You're, you're, you're just giving away 15 wins. 16 wins. The guy won 15 games in a row, like 16 years in a row. And most divisions are won by one or two games. So if you give 15 off the bat, you know what I mean? And... Uh, most teams are built on their pitching. Um, uh, you look at the success of the Braves with Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, Avery was through there. Pete Smith was through there. I started for a couple of years. Um, we never, good teams don't have long 
losing streaks. And uh, we never had more than a three-game losing streak in Atlanta because you weren't going to beat all four of our guys in a row. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. John Pielli here, former Major League pitcher Mike Bilecki. Now, you know, when he first joined the Braves, you came across uh, along with Damon Berryhill from the Cubs before the 91 season. Did you sense that that team had the ability to be as good as it it ended up being? I mean, the Braves were a last-place team in 1990. They were a team that was rebuilding. I think, you know, a lot of people did know about some of the young prospects that were coming up, the Glavins, the Smoltzes, you know, guys like that. Did you think that that team was going to end up being as good as it turned out to be over the next several years? No, not really. Um, But they were, like I was saying, when I first came up with Pittsburgh, uh, John Sherholtz went out and he knew he had a bunch of good young arms, but he had an aging infield. So he went out and and got like Jerry Pendleton and Blouser was playing short and and Mark Lemke. And he went out and and Rafael Belliard played uh, short. So he went out and got a bunch of guys that could catch the ball in the infield and then Glavin started winning games. Smoltz started winning games. These guys started uh, uh, winning ball games because the you know guys were making plays behind them. And Schurl, uh, John Schurl's, uh, just built the team there. And over those years, kept all those free agents. Wouldn't let them sign and go anywhere else. But that year, and in, in, uh, I didn't think I was getting traded from the Cubs because I had kind of established myself in Chicago. I was coming up being a free agent. I didn't even bought a house there. And um, I didn't, Damon and I didn't, didn't um, join the club until September, so we weren't eligible to play in the playoffs, but uh, Sherholtz made that move uh, for the following year, for 1992, and uh, we ended up going to the series again, and we lost to the, the Blue Jays that year. Yeah, now, now I think what, what turns out to be, you know, like interesting is you end up keep coming back to the Atlanta Braves. Uh-huh. You, you know, you end up you know moving to other teams. Of course, you ended up going to the Cleveland Indians at the one point, and you know it's the sad story about the you know the the, the accident that took the lives of Tim oh, Cruz yeah. and Steve Olin, and you know Bobby Ojeda was seriously hurt in that boat accident. Now you were you were actually asked to be on that uh, that that boating trip. Right. Uh, um, I, well, I wasn't supposed to be in the big league that year. I had Tommy John surgery on my elbow. Okay. Um, I blew out my elbow uh, on my birthday in 1992, and I needed Tommy John surgery. So I, I was a free agent, and I had signed, Cleveland assigned me to a, a, a contract that I was supposed to go to Charlotte and rehab. And then, you know, towards the end of the year, once I got my arm strength back, you know, they were planning on me being uh, ready for the second half of the season. And um, so I was, I was, I had had Tommy John surgery that September, and I was pitching in spring training, but I was, I could only go one or two innings at a time because I didn't have any endurance, um, and I still had the back of my head from the surgery. And that we lost two, three pitchers right there from that accident and it was uh, later on in spring training so it was like everyone's rosters were were ready and so I mean I got thrown into the mix and I really wasn't ready so it was tough losing three pitchers like that and then tough pitching the big league hitters when you're only about 60 to 75 percent healthy but um, yeah that was pretty tough because that uh, I was fishing with those guys the day before 
And um, Timmy Cruz had said, uh, um, we had one day off in spring training, and it was the next day. And Timmy Cruz had said, hey, I'm, we're going to have a picnic at my house. He lived there all year long. And he said, we're going to have some, some beers and some burgers and hang out. The wives can meet each other and all that stuff. And I really wanted to go, but my, my wife at the time wanted to go to Disney World. And I was like, that's the last thing I want to do on the only day off in spring training is go stand in four-hour lines in Disney World. So she won the argument, and uh, I never went over Timmy's house. So it probably saved my life because I'd have been on that boat with those guys. Now, that's a shame, and obviously, you know, as you go through that season, you say, you know, you're a little bit rushed back from your surgery. It must have been, uh, must have been a tough season for the Indians, probably playing with, you know, a heavy heart of, you know, what happened so oh, yeah. close to the end of spring training, and just, you know, just like that, those guys are gone. I mean, I'm sure it had it, it, its impact on the team. Well, it was, the whole, I think the whole spring training was shut down for four or five days because the whole baseball world was shocked because, you know, Three guys were, or two guys were killed at once, and, and Bobby O'Hara never played again. And uh, baseball players or athletes think they're superhuman, you know, like nothing can happen to them. And then all of a sudden, it's like you're sitting next to a locker that you were just talking to a guy, and, and now he's dead. So the whole, you know, the whole season, we actually had a pretty good young team in Cleveland, but. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a, an emotional thing that a lot of guys couldn't get over with. No, absolutely. I mean, it was unfortunate that I was in that situation. I should have been glad to be in the big leagues, but it's not the ideal situation to be in the big leagues when you're not healthy. No, definitely not. And then, you, know, you end up getting through that season. I believe you finished with the Baltimore Orioles organization. Right. And you end up yeah. back with... I, I had gotten released, and, and I had come home. And Rick Sutcliffe is a good friend of mine. He was actually staying in my house here in Baltimore while I played for the Orioles. And he uh, got me a tryout to go up to the Orioles to, to throw, and they signed me to Rochester to come back. But after I was a free agent and I was healthy, I signed back to the Braves again in 94. Yeah, once again, John Pielli here, a former major league pitcher, Mike Bilecki. Now, you know, 1994 comes. This was probably the, the – probably a down season for, for the Atlanta Braves, though they were still competitive. You still never know how things would have turned out with the, you know, with the, the strike and the whole thing. But, you know, the, the Expos were ahead considerably in the National League East. And, you know, t- tell us a little bit about the 94 season and what ended up, you know, leaving to, leading to the strike. Well, the whole year, everyone was uh, concerned whether we were going to start the season. And the whole time it was hanging around everyone's head. I think the Expos had about, a, I don't know, maybe a four or five game lead on us, but we still felt confident enough. We still had good pitching. I mean, we didn't know if we were going to catch them, but we knew um, that we could rattle off five, six, seven wins in a row with our pitching staff. And then it was kind of like, oh, this strike will never happen. It's not going to happen. They're not going to let it happen. Both sides are going to lose too much money. It's not good for baseball. I remember when we were in Colorado and, and the day came up and everyone's waiting for the you know the news that we got a new agreement. And uh, right before the game started, the traveling secretary came in told everybody to pack up and go home. And we were like, and he said, no, go home. You guys are on your own now. You're on your own. <laughs> so we had to buy our own plane tickets and all that stuff. And 
everyone went, oh, well, we're only going to stay in shape, we're only going to be here for a couple of weeks, and they'll get it over with, and, and it just kept going on and on, and then finally, when, when it was about three weeks, three weeks old, we know, hey, this ain't coming back, because a lot of guys are, uh, you know, probably not drawn or starting to get out of shape, and once they canceled the whole thing, we thought, God, this and we might cancel the following year because both sides, neither side would blink. They already lost all the money that they were going to lose. So we didn't know if we'd ever get back to playing. And then it went into uh, spring training. I think that spring training in 95 was only uh, like two, two weeks long, I think, after it was uh, completed. That was a weird season. Yeah, no, it definitely was. Now, by that time, you were you weren't on Atlanta anymore, right? In '95. No, you know what? I was supposed to sign with the Braves because my arm was healthy, and there was Braves were looking at me, and they were looking at a left-handed pitcher, and they uh, I cut lefties out better than righties because I threw a split finger, so um, I could you know you didn't have to flip flop pitchers for me when I came in as a bullpen, and. Um, I wanted to sign with the Braves, I wanted to sign with the Braves, and I was in Homestead, where all the uh, free agents were, it was like a little mini camp, and I got an offer with the Angels, and my agent said, you better take the, a one-year deal, because if, if the Braves signed this lefty, um, I think it was Derek Lilliquist or somebody, they were looking at me and Shim, said, they signed him, and you could be stuck and not have a job for the whole year, so... Um, I didn't want to go to the American League because I played the whole year, my whole career in the National League. And I said, all right, I'm not too keen on going to California, but I'll go for the year. Of course, on my way out to California, Schroll's called and he wants to sign me. And I already signed with the Angels, and that's the year they won the yeah, it had, it had to be some bad luck. Of course, you end up returning there for 96 and 97. You had a chance to pitch for a bunch of different Braves teams. Amongst the yeah. teams that you pitched for, what do you think was the best team up and down? The best Atlanta team? That you pitched for. Probably, probably 96 or 97. 96, I think that's the year's multi won the Cy Young, and Glavin probably won in 19. Uh, Maddox was Maddox, and um, I thought we had a better team than the Yankees did that year, but uh, we couldn't be left-handers. We had all our power from the left-hand side, and they they were throwing uh, Kenny Rogers and Al Leiter against us, and, and all you had to do was throw lefties against us, and it shut us down. <laughs> Well, all right, listen, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having some time today. Listen, I'll stay in touch. Hopefully I can get you on the program sometime in the near future. All right, well, good luck with everything, and have a, a great rest of the summer, which, uh, however much we got left. I know, right? All right, uh... Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there. Former Major League pitcher Mike Bielecki, 18 wins for the Chicago Cubs in 1989 and, of course, was a, a very important part of the back end of the Atlanta Brave rotation when he was there in 91, 92, 94, uh, 96 and 97 and you know you need stability throughout your rotation and it's not all about the Greg Mag- Maddoxes and the John Smoltz and the Tom Glavins you need other guys that are going to be able to get hitters out too and Mike Bilecki was that type of pitcher Listen, we're going to take our first break of this hour be back with a lot more stuff going on pass ball show baseball interview show back after this MTR Radio MTR Radio 
Hello, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone app store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin, and you're rocking with the crew on MTR Radio. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. You can put this together, right? <clears throat> I like to tap that app on MTR Radio. <laughs> uh, let's see. <clears throat> um... M-T-R. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. I love MTR Radio because of its uh, innovative direction. That's a bunch of shit. I love MTR Radio because they accept me. Ah, you knucklehead. Hey, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Trending today on Twitter. MTR. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, Baseball Interview Show, right here on EMTR Radio Network. And uh, just a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, anything that you want to talk about in regards to baseball, anything that I brought up, anything any of my uh, interviewees brought up throughout the duration of the show you want to talk about. We keep this interactive. I keep my phone on me. I go back and forth with just about anybody that's got something to say. So definitely an interactive program here. But in regards to me, I haven't said too much. Todd Pratt. Mike Bilecki, John Wisden pretty much said it all. And, uh, you know, we opened the show talking a little bit about Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees. And, you know, I would like to get your thoughts on that. I uh, look forward to going back and forth with a couple people in regards to that. But another thing going on in Major League Baseball that happened since the last time we were on the air here, and that was the firing of Philadelphia Phillies manager Charlie Manuel. And Manuel, obviously, the winningest manager in the history of the franchise, but the team is absolutely tanked it. I mean, it, you know, this is a situation where I don't know if they're intentionally trying to lose baseball games, but this is a situation where this team has gone out there and played as bad over an extended period of time as possible. And, 
you know, it's a situation that no matter how much a manager has clout, how much a manager, uh, you know, is the guy that the team may or may not want to go to in the future, uh, you know, it always seems to fall on a guy like that's uh, back. And Charlie Manuel done after his run with the Philadelphia Phillies, and you look at his career as a manager, and you know, listen, I mean, he was he was part of the team for some of their better years in history. And you really go back to the late 70s and early 80s since you had a Philadelphia Philly team that was even close to the, the type of team that you saw over the last several seasons. Started, of course, started of course in 2005, leading the Phillies to 88 wins and a second-place finish. A second-place finish with 85 wins the following season and then five straight NL East titles from 2007 to 2011. 102 wins in 2011, a World Series championship in 2008, a National League pennant in 2009, 782 wins, 638 losses, a 551 winning percentage with the Philadelphia Phillies. And let's be honest, this guy did a good job. And, you know, we talk about how managers in the past, their times just run out. And this was simply the case with Charlie Manuel. And Manuel, uh, listen, he finally got to a point where he probably couldn't get through to this team anymore. Uh, it's almost laughable how bad they've gotten and, you know, how they continue to lose games. I mean, you got guys like Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee and even Kyle Kendrick at the top of your rotation. You know, Papelbon and a bullpen that has been okay but not very good. And this is a situation where they just, just kind of – the team kind of lost the handle. Manuel ends up paying the price. And then Ryan Sandberg gets his chance to manage at the big league level. And Sandberg, of course, the longtime player, came up with the Philadelphia Phillies, was traded to the Chicago Cubs and Yvonne DeJesus trade. Of course, Larry Boa went with him from Philadelphia to Chicago, where Dallas Green was as the general manager of the Chicago Cubs. And you remember with uh, Dallas Green being the manager of the Phillies when they won the World Series championship in 1980, and he, of course, had a fond, you know, remembrance of Ryan Sandberg, a guy coming up through the system. And he traded for Sandberg, and the rest was history. And Sandberg ends up, after his playing career, becoming a manager in the Chicago Cubs organization, managing several years on several different levels, and never got a chance to become the big league manager. He was passed up by Dale Swaim, who got the job before the 2012 season. And after that, he decided it was time to move on. And where does he go? Full circle back to the Philadelphia Phillies. And he manages in AAA last year. He comes back, joins Charlie Manuel's coaching staff, and is named the interim manager for the rest of the 2013 season. So we'll get a, get a chance, if you're a Philadelphia fan, to see what you got in Ryan Sandberg as a manager. But, of course, the key, and I always say, is not the manager, not the guy you have behind the bench for you. It is the team that you have on the field. And a mouse can go out there and lead a team to a World Series championship if they have the best players and the most talent on the field. And I know there are some Philadelphia Philly fans that like Charlie Manuel and respect what he did as a manager. There's also some other fans that couldn't wait for him to get out of here. And there's other fans that thought, well, simply, the Phillies are going to be much better once Charlie Manuel is gone. And the third group that I'm referring to couldn't be any more wrong. A manager does not make the team. The team makes its manager. And those who may be lauding Charlie Manuel, for what he did as manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, understands that his success had a lot to do with the talent that he had on, on, as players. If he was given a roster like the Houston Astros, he would be just as bad as the Houston Astros are right now. If he was given a roster that was jacked with the players from the late 20s and early 30s New York Yankees, 
he'd be winning World Series every year. So Charlie Manuel ranks probably somewhere in the middle. He is, ne- he is not a horrible manager. He is not a great manager, but was a very good manager for the players that he had assembled around him. And listen, just like Terry Francona in Boston, just like you could say with Davey Johnson with the New York Mets, just like you could even say with Joe Torre in the New York Yankees, there comes a time where a manager's shtick just doesn't go any further. And that's what you had here with the Philadelphia Phillies. And you're going to see where Ryan Sandberg, maybe not necessarily with something to prove, but just to show that he could do the job. And I think, I think he's a guy that the Phillies feel like they could go with for the long term. And once I mentioned, of course, on uh, other past programs, I've even written about it, the 2014 Philadelphia Phillies should look a little different than the 2013 Phillies. My question is, will it? You look at the players that are there. You look at the players that are on the roster right now, from the veterans that are signed to the young players that are penciled in to automatically fill holes. It doesn't look like there's going to be a lot of changes. And the Philadelphia Philly team that has Ryan Howard at first base, Chase Utley at second, Jimmy Rollins at short, Cody Ashey at third, Tommy Joseph behind the plate, Ben Rivera in center, Darren Ruff in right, and Dominic Brown in left, does not look like a bad team. The problem is, is you've looked at a team that has rolled itself over from year to year to year. 81 and 81 in 2012. Probably will finish under 500 this season. And will finish well under 500, barring a strong finish. They're rolling it over again. And it's not that there aren't talented players on this team. It's not that these players aren't good. It's not that 29 other teams would line up to have Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels pitching 1-2 in their starting rotation. It's not that they could get 25-plus teams to take Dominic Brown if they wanted to trade him. It's the fact that teams that get to a point where the magic that worked before does not work anymore, you need to make some sort of big change. And I don't know what that change is. And maybe my Philly fans could tweet at me, John underscore Pielli, and we'll have a little bit of discussion like we do every week. What, what do the Phillies do? Because you can make a case, and I've heard this on other programs, I've heard this on you know m- many, uh, many other uh, programs before, that the Phillies have a team for next year. And, and that offensive team that I just mentioned could very well be it. And if you talk about a rotation that has Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee, and maybe Kyle Kendrick and Jonathan Pettibone and Ethan Martin and Jesse Biddle, and you make some sort of combination that those guys fit and maybe even bring back Roy Halladay, you pretty much know what the rotation's going to be next year. And a bullpen with a guy like Jonathan Papelbon who's signed. Mike Adams is signed. Antonio Bastardo is going to be back. Justin DeFreitas will probably be back. So you get a certain core of the bullpen, which looks like it may be the same. So if you want different results and you're going out with the same team, what do you expect? And I'm not saying this team's going to be, be as bad as it's been this year. You put a combination of injury and lack of interest. You know, it's, it's hit a historic low. But one thing I will say is that it's going to be tough to expect a team like this to go out there and perform at a high level like they were before 2012. And this team to win 85, 90 games, yes, it's very possible. You could say that every season. But we were all duped after the 2012 season. We all thought it would be that easy. We all thought that this veteran team, which was held together by a core that got them a World Series championship and a pennant the following season in 2008 and 2009. We were all duped 
into the fact that this team could turn it on and become what it was then. And the issue has been and continues to be, it's not that easy. And, it, you know, can, can Hamels and Lee be, you know, 20-game winners next year? Listen, that'll do a lot to making this team competitive. Will Ryan Howard be healthy for a whole season? Chase Utley, who's actually had a pretty good year this year, can he perform at the same level that he performed at this, this past season? Because Chase Utley, if you look at his career stats, you could say that he is pretty close to being on pace for the type of numbers that he has put up in the better years of his career. Now, you look at 2005 to 2008, nobody's reasonably going to expect Chase Utley to put numbers up like that. But he's on pace this year to put up better numbers and play more games than he did in 2011 and 2012. And if you look at 2009, 282, 3193, 2010, 275, 1665, it looks like he could do better than 1665. And will play in more games, obviously, than 115 that he played there. So I'm convinced that Chase Utley is not done. But my question is going to be, can he stay healthy for a whole season like he has done for the better part of this year? And then you look at some of the other players, you know, whether it's a Howard, whether it's a Jimmy Rollins. You know, you look at some of the other guys, and it's very interesting to think of and go back to try to figure out what these players have to do to get back to where they were at before. Ryan Howard, before his injury, was probably still driving in 90 runs. You know, he, he, he's, he's going to get his strikeouts. He's going to hit his home runs. But it's all very interesting to look at. But we're going to put that discussion on hold, and we're going to welcome in former Major League outfielder Jason Grabowski. Jason, what's going on, buddy? How you doing, Jeff? Ah, man, appreciate you uh, being part of the program. Um, you know, let's get into a little bit about, you know, your playing career. You obviously, uh, you know, you were drafted early on. You ended up deciding to go back to school. And then you were ended up, yep. you know, because of that, you had a chance to be taken in a higher round. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your beginning and you being drafted in the major leagues. Well, when I started in high school, you know, I just came from a humble background, small town. So, you know, I just was getting a lot of attention, but, you know, never really thought anything would come of it. And uh, I was lucky, you know, enough to get drafted out of high school and, you know, back then I was uh, a little bit skinnier and a little less wiser. So, you know, I just decided that, you know, school was the best thing for me. And also for a chance, you know, to improve in the draft as well. And uh, luckily, you know, played my whole career, uh, every game, and stayed healthy and had a chance to go higher. Yeah, and I tell you, when you're at that age, you know, you're 18, 19 years old, you, you know, you're at a point where you've already been noticed. You know, Major League Baseball has noticed you to a point that even if that same team that drafted you before – uh, you know, may not be interested the next time. There's enough information about you that you you got to feel pretty confident that you're going to get drafted when you're ready. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, just as long as you you know you play well and you put up some numbers, you know, I think uh, everybody still you know sees the skills you know developing, and uh, it just worked out well for me. You know, I was hoping to get drafted again by New York, but you know, unfortunately, it didn't go that way, and uh, there was no hard feelings on their part or mine. But uh, you know, lucky enough for uh, Texas to take me. Yeah, absolutely. In the second round, of course, in the 1997 draft. And, you know, you end up going through their system a little bit and then, you know, end up making really your first uh, major league impact with the Oakland Athletics after you're taken in a Rule 5 draft in 2001. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, you know, going through waivers with Seattle and then eventually being taken in a Rule 5 draft. Uh, must have must have been a little uneasy for you to bounce around a couple different organizations, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you realize it's a business. You know, and you're also playing for, you know, every other team out there. 
So, you know, once you, once you um, I guess, go through, you know, some ups and downs with the organization, with any organization, you know, you realize it is a business, and, uh, you know, there's always somebody, you know, ready to take your spot. So when uh, I got picked up off waivers by, um, by Seattle, and, uh, you know, it opened another door, and then um, once they took me off the roster, you know, I knew which route they were going at the end of uh, 01, and uh, was lucky enough to get, you know, picked up Rule 5 by um, Oakland. But also knowing that I was out of options, you know, I could declare free agency, you know, a couple of years earlier, which was, you know, was, was a benefit for me. And then they knew that as well, and you know, we were able to sign me back, you know, right away. Yeah, and obviously you end up moving on to the Los Angeles Dodgers, where you have your uh, really the your your best success of your career in 2004 and 2005. Tell us a little bit about the transition to LA and being part of that those, those teams, which obviously culminated with the 2004 uh, NLDS appearance. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I had my the most success ever. I, I guess I had a little bit here and there. You know, it was it was great. You know, I knew there wasn't. You know, there were Oakland was you know very uh, upfront, honest with me from the beginning of spring training that you know unless somebody got hurt, you know, there wasn't going to be a spot for me. And you know, come the end of spring training, they do whatever they could to get me a you know big league job. And you know, it just worked out. You know, Paul D. Podesta was the assistant GM at Oakland. He went over to L.A. and uh, we'd always been you know good friends, and he was a fan of mine, and as well as I as him. And, uh, you know, he picked me up. They traded for me, I think it was like three days left in spring training. And uh, it was great. You know, I loved L.A. You know, they have great fans. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like going to a, to a game and, you know, where celebrities want to see us, you know, we want to see them. You know, it was, I, had a, I had a blast there. And uh, definitely going to the playoffs. It was my third year in a row going to the playoffs. You know, I went the two years I was with Oakland. And, you know, again, actually to be on the field and on the active roster, you know, with L.A., and it was an experience, you know, all chairs. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, this is John Pielli, mayor of former Major League Outfielder Jason Grabowski. Now, you know, after that, you end up playing in uh, in Japan for that one year. You know, uh, you know, numbers don't seem too good. I would assume it wasn't really the best experience for you. Uh, you know, living there was was great. It's the uh, the baseball aspect of it. I mean, everybody you know has different different opinions. For me, you know, I just I just felt like you know we were there just to. To try to do as much as we could, and uh, not really take much credit for it. But you know, different guys have different experiences. You know, I loved it there. It's just uh, I didn't feel like I got the opportunity that I was told I was going to be given. And you know, that's you know, numbers. You know, just weren't there. Now, I, now I ask this question to a lot of a lot of major league players that play. You know, that play in Japan for part of their career. Do you do you think it's more difficult? For you know, to be a foreign player over there, then it would be vice versa. You know, like playing in you know Major League Baseball. Well, you know, of course I'm gonna say yes. I mean, it's just to me, you know, it's just a whole different. You know, I think when 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 foreigners come over here, I think they're you know they have a lot more accessibility to, to everything. You know, over there, you know, we're just pretty much. You know, here's how you get to the field. You know, here's your translator, and I'll uh, see you tomorrow. You know, just. Uh, well, it's, it's tough, you know, it's a tough adjustment, but, uh, you know, I definitely had a great time, and, you know, I'd go back in a heartbeat if, if you know, had, you know, the opportunity. But, uh, no, I mean, I can't really say a bad thing about it, you know, other than I just wish I was given a, uh, more of an opportunity to play. No, yeah, very true, man. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here for Major League Outfielder Jason Grabowski. Now, you know, you end up uh, coming to the Tampa Bay Devil Rays in 2007 in spring training. You end up being reassigned to the minors. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience, and was 
was that to a point where you realized you might not be playing anymore, or did you uh, expect to try to latch on with another team? No, the the whole the whole thing behind that was I got this thing training the first couple of weeks. My knees were killing me, and uh, it turned out I had some sort of uh, genetic condition where my tendon was crisscrossed in my knee. Really? And uh, so that's pretty much what ended my career. They said you know you have surgery, be out you know six to eight months with no guarantee it works, or you know we'll do whatever you want to do. And I was like you know I kind of want to be able to walk when I'm older, so I just you know decided to retire, and that's when they you know reassigned me and. That was it. Now, now, have you stuck around? Are you still involved in the game at all? No, no. I, you know, I follow the game. You know, I, I try to keep tabs on guys I played with and live with and whatnot, and you know, see how they're doing. But you know, I just pretty much just follow the game. I, I didn't want to really travel too much anymore. You know, I kind of got sick of that, and just want to stay in one location for for a while. And you know, who knows? Maybe someday down the road, something will come up. But you know, as of right now, you know, I'm pretty content in, in the way things are going here. All right, Jason, listen, I want to wish you the best of luck, man, and you know, hopefully uh, you know, best of luck to you in the future. I appreciate you having a couple minutes and being part of the show today. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, right, take care, man. All right, bye-bye. All right, that was Jason Grabowski. Jason Grabowski is a former outfielder, came up like we just talked about with the Oakland Athletics and made his you know debut with the Athletics, played with the Dodgers a couple years in 2004, 2005, had a little bit of experience in Japan. And, you know, he was kind of that, you know, utility fourth, fifth outfielder type of guy with some speed, ability to play some defense. And, you know, at a time where, you know, listen, there were, you know, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of teams value that type of spot, you know, got to be able to do a little bit of everything. And that was definitely a nice catching up with Jason Grabowski. But we're going to take our last break. Only going to do 30 seconds. Dude. We're going to play a ball show and we'll be back to finish up this part of the past ball show. Baseball interview show back after this. Oh yeah, welcome back, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, Baseball Interview Show, and of course you've heard me say it a couple times, and that's the name that I'm going to go with for a little while now because it really is the Pass Ball Show, Baseball Interview Show, and it, you know I'll call it PBS, I'll call it Pass Ball Show, but that's really what we're referring to. Always knocking out interviews every week, and you know before we finish up the program today, and obviously there's another uh, nine or so minutes to go, but. You know, I want to thank uh, the guys for being part of the show today, Todd Pratt, Mike Bilecki, John Wozden, and Jason Grabowski. So as we move forward, um, you want to tweet at me with the Philly talk. You know, we talk about a situation where this is, a, this is an organization, in my opinion. I don't think they got to shut it down. I think they got to blow it up. But I do think that offensively they may need to make a significant upgrade at the expense of somebody that's there. And you talk about Jimmy Rollins being a guy that ideally they would like to trade and maybe Rollins won't let him. I think that's something that I have to work out. Utley is not tradable. Ryan Howard is not tradable. Do you move a Ben Revere or a Dominic Brown? Most Philly fans would not like to see that. But if you package one or both of them in a trade and get yourself a significant upgrade somewhere else, then maybe it's worth it. In my opinion, the Phillies should tinker with their roster and not roll forward what we expect to see in 2014. 
That's just one man's opinion. But like I said, I'd be, be happy to talk about it with anybody that wants to talk about it. But, you know, moving forward, I got into a, a little bit of a discussion back and forth. We were talking about the Chris Davis trade from Texas to Baltimore, which involved Koji Uhara and Tommy Hunter. And it happened two years ago. And, of course, Chris Davis, if it wasn't for the season of Miguel Cabrera, he would certainly be the heads-on, dominant, unanimous choice for the Most Valuable Player Award in the American League. He's got, you know, 45-plus home runs, the you know, ridiculous amount of RBIs, you know, the whole thing. You look at what Miguel Cabrera has done, and, yes, Miguel Cabrera is probably the MVP in the American League. But going back to that trade when he was sent with Tommy Hunter from Texas to Baltimore in a, in a trade for Koji O'Hara. Now, remember, Koji O'Hara was added to what was already a pretty good bullpen in Texas. Texas at the time was looking to get themselves back into the postseason, you know, where, where they had been in 2010. They were in the World Series. They lost to the Giants. They ended up making it back and lost to the Cardinals in 2011. So this was a situation where the, the Rangers moved a couple young players that they didn't necessarily think we're going to be huge factors going forward. They were wrong probably about Chris Davis, and even Tommy Hunter has turned out to be a decent relief pitcher, 40-plus games. He's pitching to about a three ERA. He's shown that he could get outs in all different types of innings. He's probably not a back-of-the-bullpen type of guy. He's not a setup man slash closer, but, but he's become a very useful piece. And Uhara went back the other way to Texas, and Uhara would finish that season up and end up playing there one more season, was a free agent this past year, and signed with the Boston Red Sox. Have you checked out what Cody O'Hara has done? Really over the course of his last three, four seasons? I mean, as a closer for the Boston Red Sox, he has been as good as anybody. And, you know, if you, and I, and I kind of went hypothetical with this. I said, if you match on paper Chris Davis with Tommy Hunter for Cody O'Hara, and you put their numbers up against the, each other this year, it's not as much of a blowout as it, it's made out to be. It really isn't. It's easy to say, oh, well, Chris Davis, 45 home runs. But have you looked to see what Koji Uhara has done this, you know, this past season and in seasons prior? I mean, if it wasn't for O'Hara, he, the Boston Red Sox might, might be done now. And I know that's a crazy statement to say because the Red Sox have led the uh, the not the American League Eastern Division for a good portion of the season, you know maybe maybe Speziali might disagree with me, but the fact that this guy has gone out there and been that lights out, the 77 strikeouts of 55 and two thirds innings, the 1.29 ERA, the WHIP of .068, and let's be honest, I mean his his, his WHIP is is under one for his career. The only time it was over was a one season in 2009 with Baltimore where he made pitched in 12 games all as a starter. As a starter, he had a 1.245 whip, which ain't that bad. But he, he, he was, he's been lower than that. Every single other year he's been in the majors and has been a godsend to the bullpen of the Boston Red Sox. And if you look at the Red Sox and where they stand, we talked before and I mentioned it with injuries to guys like Joel Hanrahan and Andrew Bailey and Andrew Miller. And you look at where the bullpen stands – Listen, if it wasn't for her hire, they'd be screwed. My little girl, every food is you, you look at you, Janichi Tozawa, Craig Breslow. They, they've done good jobs. They need, deserve credit as well. Brandon Workman, since he's become a reliever, has been okay. You know, they got other guys that have come in in certain spots and gotten a job done. Drake Britton's been okay as a lefty specialist. Matt Thornton, who's come over from uh, Chicago, has been a help. But if it wasn't for Koji Uhara, this Boston bullpen would look a lot different than it does right now. 
So that begs to question. And listen, I, I want to get. I want my Twitter to be blasting after this. I do. Can you make a case that the Davis and Hunter for O'Hara trade was not as bad as it, it ends up being? Because if you put O'Hara in a Texas Ranger uniform, putting up numbers like he is this year and he has in the years past, does that take some of the pain away for the Texas Rangers trading Chris Davis? Obviously, the Rangers are feeling a ton of pain for moving Davis. They would love to shuttle him in to the middle of their own lineup right now as they're making a push to win the American League Western Division. There's no doubt about that. He would be that addition that would put them over the top. They would score a ton more runs. He would, his home runs would be you know, very well valued by the Texas Rangers organization. But my case, and listen, blast me all you want. I don't think that trade was a wash. I don't think that trade was even by any stretch of the imagination. But it wasn't a uh, Juan Samuel for Lenny Dykstra and Roger McDowell. It was not a Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi. It was not an Amos Otis for Joe Foy. It was a situation where it worked out for the best interest of the Baltimore Orioles, but was not a a, a dead wrong horrible move because the Rangers could have retained O'Hara. And you know, with Joe Nathan and with you know some of the guys they have in that bullpen, their bullpen could even be even better and would be if you put Uahara and his numbers into the back end of it. So that's really what I have to say about that. Going on, some other things going on. Obviously, the Pittsburgh Pirates and St. Louis Cardinals are probably in the best division race in Major League Baseball, unless you want to talk about the Rangers and the Athletics. But those are probably the two division races that are going to have the most uh, things going on as we, we move on. You know, you say the American League East, yeah, there's four teams possibly that could be involved in it. And we talked about the Yankees at the beginning of the show. But, you know, Boston does have a, a three-game lead right now. Boston is in a position where, it, you know, it's in their own hands. If they play good baseball, there's a good chance they'll be able to pull ahead and win. The same can't be said about the Pirates and the Cardinals. They're tight. The Athletics and the Rangers are even tighter. Those are two races that were going to be very interesting to see because the Athletics-Rangers race may be only for one team, while the National League Central race with the Pirates and the Cardinals will be one team winning a division and the other team having to play the one-game play-in game. And, you know, that works for those guys. And obviously you would prefer to win the division and be into the division series already and not have to play that one game. But if you're in the American League West where you look at all the other teams that are involved, and we talked about Tampa Bay, we talked about Baltimore, we talked about, you know, the Cleveland Indians and the Kansas City Royals and even the New York Yankees, all interesting things to look at as we move on in this baseball season. But want to thank once again John Wasden, want to thank Jason Grabowski, um, Todd Pratt and Mike Bilecki for being part of the program. This is the Passball Show, baseball interview show. We'll be back with you next week. Enjoy the program on America's radio station, MTR Radio.